Our scripture tonight comes from the Gospel of John. We will be beginning tonight a series in the Gospel of John, and tonight we will look at chapter 1, verses verses 1 through 18. John 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared him. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we open up this word of your gospel, I pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it. Pray that we would know and truly believe and recognize your son, Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God and the word come in flesh. And I pray that we would all believe in him, for he has given the right to be children of God to all who would believe in his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you have met someone for the first time or had a job interview or had some other situation where you have had to talked to someone for maybe the first time ever and had to feel the dreaded and completely unguided and open-ended question, tell me about yourself. Now, it's a question that one can go a lot of different ways in answering it. And some of how you might answer that question depends on who's asking and why. You might have different focuses, different emphases, telling about yourself, uh, depending on who is asking and why. When I interviewed for a job at a bank, 
a few months after I graduated college, a job that I did get, um, I gave my basic biography, but with more of an emphasis on work. What had I done for jobs? What did I study in school? What did I know about cash handling? That sort of thing, because I was trying to get a job at a bank. When I went on my first date with Heidi, that story was a bit different. I mean, it was the same general story, my life, but presented from a different angle. She wasn't interested in my studies in finance and my cash handling experience. When I interviewed at Presbytery a few weeks ago, they asked me that question, and obviously then I focused more on spiritual aspects and ministerial service. So still the same story, but different angle, different focus. So we begin tonight a series in John's Gospel. It is the fourth and final Gospel both in the order of the books of the New Testament, and it was probably also the last one to be written chronologically. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, overlap pretty significantly with each other. If you read them all, you'll notice they cover a lot of the same material. And they are all out to answer the same challenge. Tell me about Jesus. Now, John still seeks to tell the reader about Jesus, but he does it a little differently. As the last to write his gospel, he probably knew, John probably knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some or all of these books. And so his gospel covers almost entirely new material in comparison. He's still answering the same challenge. Tell me about Jesus, but from a different angle, different perspective, different interests in mind than the first three Gospels, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels. So in a certain sense, John is supplemental to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and yet it forms a coherent and powerful account of its own. Now the John, for whom this book is named, who wrote this book, is John the Apostle. He is not to be confused with John the Baptist, who is actually the John mentioned by name here in chapter 1. John the Apostle, he was one of the closest apostles to Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and Andrew and then his own brother, James. John had personal, close knowledge of Jesus. And late in his life, most think this gospel was probably written in the 90s AD when John was an old man. He wants to enter this knowledge of Jesus into the record. But this is more than just a mere biography. It has a purpose. Although John does not explicitly state the purpose, at least not summarily, until chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he writes after Jesus' resurrection, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote this book so that we may have life by believing in Jesus Christ. He records this gospel so that it might be heard and that faith might come by hearing this word of Christ. And that influence is what he writes and why he writes and how he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
John writes this gospel so that people may hear of Christ and have eternal life. This comes back over and over again throughout this book. But how does John begin to answer this question, tell us about Jesus? This is a historical and biographical book, but it is most importantly given for the salvation of God's people. And so we see how in light of that emphasis and in light of that desire, how John introduces Jesus. We see the prologue tonight to John's gospel, these first 18 verses. First, we see the words existence in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We see that this word, this son of God, does exist. And we learn details about that. And then second, we see the words expectation in verses 6 through 13. The word was expected, though met with varying responses. And then third and finally, the words entrance in verses 14 through 18. How does the word, how does the Son of God come to us? So we have the words existence, expectation, and entrance. First, we look at the words existence in verses 1 through 5. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Son of God? Where did he come from? What is he? Why did he come? What did he purpose to do? Well, to answer these questions, John begins at the beginning. Now, not just the beginning, historically speaking, of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, he doesn't really include the historical beginning of Jesus' incarnation. John does not record Jesus' conception and birth like Matthew and Luke do. Now, when John starts at the beginning, he starts at the beginning. The beginning of everything. A time before time. A place before place. Before even the world was made. And he writes, In the beginning was the word. Now we probably can't hear in the beginning and not think of Genesis 1:1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning is before and outside of the world. The beginning was when the world was not. And yet in the beginning the word was. Now why does John use this word word? In the Greek, it is logos. It is a word that doesn't have to mean word. It can mean different things. It could mean a matter or a thing. John Calvin, when he comments on and translates this text, he actually prefers to translate logos as speech or sermon. He gives two reasons. I'll quote him here. First, Because he, the Son of God, is the eternal wisdom and will of God. And secondly, because he is the lively image of his purpose. For his speech is said to be among men the image of the mind, so it is not inappropriate to apply this to God, and to say that he reveals himself to us by his speech. So just as our words reveal us, at least when they are truthful, and even in some ways when they're not, Just as our words reveal us, Calvin uses this as an analogy for the incarnation of the Son. He is the speech of God. He is the revelation of God's wisdom and will. 
Now, not only was this word in the beginning, but we see two very important other details. He was with God and he was God. Now, in terms of our human thinking, this almost seems paradoxical. It almost seems contradictory. How can you be with someone or something and then also be that someone or something? I'm here with my notes, but I'm not my notes. I'm here with Heidi, but I am not Heidi. But God is not like us. He is not subject to the constraints and limitations of being or of reason that we are. What we see here clearly on display in these first two verses of John is the doctrine of the Trinity as it pertains to the relationship of the Father and the Son. We see here that the Father and the Son are both God, they are one God, but also that the Father is with the Son. So we have this unity of being, one God, but a plurality of persons, Father and Son. We also see this evident from the word, the Son, being with God the Father in the beginning, before creation. The Son is eternal God. So this passage is devastating to heresies, such as the one known as Arianism. It was a very prominent heresy in the early church, and it comes back now in modern times in groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that the Son was a lesser created being that came after God. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses in their so-called New World Translation actually change verse 1 to read, and the word was a God, even though there's nothing in the Greek that would lead them to do that. They're just hiding the evidence, basically, because their system does not work. Their belief about the Son is false. Now, verse 2 further emphasizes the word being in the beginning with God, but also ascribes to him personality. He was, he was in the beginning with God. Our God is not some impersonal force or idea. The word is a he, not an it. That in verse 3, we learn another important detail about the word. Not only was the Word with God, but the Word was an agent in creation. Again, this puts to rest any idea that the Son was created. The Son is not created, He is Creator. Creation was a Trinitarian work. In Genesis 1, 1 and 2, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, this being God the Father who creates by His words, by His speaking, And we also see the Spirit of God there hovering over the waters. But here in John 1, we see the completion of the Trinitarian revelation of creation. God the Father's creating was through the Son and then anointed and enlivened by the Spirit. Furthermore, nothing was made that the Word that the Son did not make. So that means the Son could not be made, He could not be created because he did not create himself. And then in verse 4, we read, In him was life. Now this is the first time we see life in John, but it will not be the last. Life is a major theme in John. Not a physical life, but a spiritual life. 
by one commentator's count, the word for life appears 36 times in the book of John. All throughout John, we will see life in Christ compared with death, the absence of life apart from him. And this life is described here as the light of men. This life in Christ goes forth. It is seen. It is radiant. It pierces the darkness. In verse 5, we see the antithesis introduced between light and darkness, which is another big theme in John. We come back to over and over again, light in Christ versus darkness in the world. In verse 5, we see that the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness does not grasp it. It does not comprehend it. Now, other translations say here that the light has not overcome it. Either is possible. I think the former of grasp or comprehend is more likely. If you've ever woke up in the middle of the night, say you need to go to the restroom or you hear something that you need to go check out, and you're in the dark, you probably know the feeling of being in the darkness and being unable to grasp, being unable to comprehend, being unable to know where you are and what is going on. You trip over things, you stub your toes, you fumble around until you find a light switch, because without it, you're not getting very far. In John, we see Jesus come as a light into the dark world, but we also see that the world does not receive him. Some do, but many do not. The scribes and Pharisees, most of the Jews, they do not comprehend the light that they have seen. In fact, they will conspire to extinguish this light, but the light will shine into the darkness. Now this brings us to our second point. After the words existence, we see the words expectation in verses 6 through 13. So we see in verse 6 the introduction of John the Baptist. He came to bear witness about the light. Now the word for bearing witness in the Greek, it is martyrion. It is the word from which we get martyr. And the meaning of the word martyr we get is from those like John the Baptist who would actually die bearing witness to the faith. But for now, John comes as the forerunner. He comes to bear witness about this light, this word which is coming. John the Apostle here is clear to distinguish John the Baptist from Christ. Some were convinced during John's ministry that he was in fact the Messiah that was to come. And so John, the author here, wants to put that to rest once and for all. John the Baptist's ministry not only had the purpose of testimony of the light, but that testimony had a goal, that all through him might believe. John's purpose, even though he did not have the full revelation and knowledge of Christ, was to preach Christ and prepare the way for him, so that those who Christ had chosen would believe. I have heard John the Baptist described in some places as the last Old Testament prophet, because he comes before Christ to testify of Christ's coming, even though he doesn't have the fullness of revelation. He'll actually die rather early in Christ's earthly ministry. Now, John was the witness to prepare the world for the arrival of Christ. 
But we see two different responses to this light going forth into the darkness. In verses 10 and 11, we see rejection. The very world that the Son made, as we saw before, did not receive him. The world was in darkness. It was blinded because of sin. We read in verse 11 that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, there is a sense in which this applies to the whole world. The Son created man, loved man, came to save man, but he was rejected. But not only was he rejected by humanity generally, he was rejected by Israel particularly. To Israel, under the Old Covenant, was given the Scriptures, the particular special revelation of God, his prophets, which were preserved, and the signs and wonders. But these were the types and shadows, the revelation of Christ that was to come. These things should have pointed them to anticipate and see Christ in his coming. But Christ comes to Israel, and by and large, Israel rejects him. They were the ones who should have most understood and received him, but they did not. But there is another response. Not all of Israel or humanity in general rejected Jesus. Some believed. Some received the gospel for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We see this in verse 12. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Those who received Jesus received a new legal and familial status. They are adopted. They become children of God, receiving a family, an inheritance, all the blessings that come with that status. But how are these blessings received? Is this, as the Arminian would argue, based on something conditional in us? Is it because we of our will and our volition choose to believe? Well, we get the answer in verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So our boasting is excluded. We have no claim to credit or glory for our salvation. It was nothing we did. It was nothing we deserved. Now, this is not merely a new legal or familial status. It is a new birth. We talked about that some this morning, new life in Christ. But I want you all to think back to the day you were born. Oh, wait, you can't. You don't remember that. I don't remember mine either. We weren't exactly capable and able to help out much in the process of our being born. We were helpless. We were completely passive. So it is with spiritual birth. God does this work in us from start to finish. We contribute nothing. Those who received the Son and believed in his name, they did not do so because they were any better, any smarter, any more spiritual, anything like that. They received him and believed in his name by grace alone, through faith alone, which was worked by the Holy Spirit. So we have seen the expectation of the Son of God. John the Baptist goes forth to prepare the way. For those who belong to Christ, who are chosen in Christ, they are prepared by God's supernatural work to receive him. 
For others, they are hardened. They will not believe, and they incur judgment and condemnation. But after the existence of the word and the expectation of the word, we now turn to our third and final point, the entrance of the word in verses 14 through 18. How did this word come to us? How did the Son of God come into the world that he had made? Now again, we don't get the nativity story like Matthew and Luke give us, but we do get in John something of a look behind the curtain at the theological and spiritual realities of Christ's incarnation. He writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God, being God, humbled himself, set aside his glory to take on the form of a humble servant a builder's son in a small town in Galilee. In fact, his birth was somewhat scandalous. Mary was found to be with child before her and Joseph were married. Not everyone was inclined to believe those stories of angelic visits and supernatural conception, even though they were true. But although Jesus Christ took on this form of a humble servant, In him was still the full and glorious revelation of the Father. For we see at the end of verse 14, John writes, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the only begotten Son of the Father, and the full revelation of the Father. We will see this as yet another recurring theme throughout John. Jesus' disciples and others, they will want to see the Father. They will want revelation of the Father. And Jesus will tell them over and over again that he is the revelation of the Father. For the Son and the Father with the Holy Spirit are and remain one true eternal God. Now we also see here that the word comes full of grace and truth. Christ was the very incarnation of grace and truth. Grace and truth are not in opposition to one another, though many in our day try to portray them as such. See, Jesus came preaching and bringing grace, repentance of sins, hope of eternal life to a fallen and sinful people, but he also brought truth. He is the final revelation the fulfillment of types and shadows. And he spoke God's word and God's will authoritatively and infallibly and inerrantly, often in conflict with the world around. In Jesus, we see grace and truth in their fullness and harmony. They do not conflict. In fact, they depend on each other. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, and in being so, gives his grace of salvation and truth of his word, but also showed us the way to reflect both grace and truth to a lost and dying world. And John the Baptist, in verse 15, makes a true testimony of this word. This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Temporally speaking, John was born before Jesus and began his ministry first. This is all documented in Luke chapters 1 and 2. But Jesus, in terms of office, 
in terms of position, because he is God, because he is the light, because he is eternal, he is preeminent above and before John. And yet, though the Son is greater than John and all other creatures, he comes in grace. He comes in love. Verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. Though we were fallen and sinful creatures, with no hope of life in us, the Son came to us, condescended to us, and has poured his grace upon us, giving us life and hope. This life and hope could not be given to us under the law. Though the law is good, though the law is righteous, though the law reveals God's will and character to us, we have all sinned and fallen short of it. The law that came through Moses could not save anyone. No one could keep it perfectly. Even if anyone could, we all bear the original sin and guilt of Adam. Furthermore, the ceremonial laws, they were nothing more than the types and shadows to point to the fullness of revelation that comes in this word. This God-man, this God come in flesh. The Son comes to reconcile us to God, though we have all fallen short of what his law requires. In Christ comes the fullness of revelation. John writes in verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. Prior to this, no one had seen the face of God. Even the great prophets of old, Moses and Elijah, they were limited in what they saw. And what they saw was nearly too much. Moses saw God from behind and walked away glowing. Elijah, too, only caught a glimpse. Those who saw God's glory, even apart from his face, they thought they were doomed in the presence of holiness. You can think of one such example in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, when he sees the glory of God. He recognizes his unworthiness, he recognizes his sinfulness, and before the glory of God, he thinks he is dead. And yet, in Christ, the Father is declared in grace and in truth. God is revealed in his fullness. Yet he does not come in wrath and destruction. He comes in grace and peace. God comes as a man. He comes as a servant. So in this prologue to John's Gospel... We see the glorious revelation of the Son who is to come. As this book unfolds, we will see this Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His person and work. We will hear of His grace and truth. And yet for tonight, even in this opening, we see the hope of the gospel. The eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful Creator God has come down to us as Jesus Christ full of grace and truth, to do what the law of Moses could not do, to bring life and salvation to fallen rebel sinners. To all who would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, this eternal life and salvation is offered as a free gift. To those who do belong to him, these are words of comfort, words of confirmation. 
We see Christ and His power, Christ and His being, set over and against all the lies and falsehoods the world might tell about Him. We see the revelation of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their work in saving us. And so let us worship and adore this great and mighty God. Let us love Him and serve Him all our days. And as He was in the beginning, He shall be with us and for us at the end. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us, who came full of grace and truth, who has given us the right to become children of God. I pray that all would believe and receive him that are here gathered, that we would be faithful to proclaim him to this lost and dying world, and that your spirit would write these words on our hearts and that they would always be with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.